And uh, let's turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark. I do apologize if you've come for a Mother's Day message. We try to alternate Mother's Day and Father's Day here at Village Bible Church uh, with regards to our preaching, and this is uh, not the Mother's Day uh, year. And so I apologize about that. If you uh, need a Mother's Day message, here is a great assignment for you kids and husbands. You be the Mother's Day message and you love on your, uh, your mom and uh, grandma and all of those great women in our lives. I will tell you that the average money that is spent on Mother's Day uh, per mother is $153. So if you're a little light today, uh, bake sale out in the foyer. So, uh, so make sure you do that. But I would say, with all joking aside, uh, we would not be the church that we are if it wasn't for the women of this place. And we are very thankful and we are very glad to have... Uh, you ladies a part of it. And our prayer and our desire is, is that we would honor you not only on Mother's Day, but every day of the year because of what you bring and how you show us the love of Jesus Christ. And so thank you. I know we've already seen a video and spent some time recognizing you, but thank you very much uh, from all of us here at Village Bible Church. Well, we find ourselves continuing in our series uh, looking at uh, Jesus Christ, the man at work. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72, and we're just a matter of hours away from Christ being hung on the cross. We find ourselves within this text looking at concurrent events that are going on simultaneously. Peter's threefold denial of Jesus Christ in the courtyard and Jesus under trial by the Sanhedrin group of the high priests and Pharisees. And we see that that is taking place in the home of the chief priest. Uh, of that day. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word as we look at Mark 14, verses 53 through 72. This is what the word of the Lord says. They says, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to, uh, are you not going to uh, answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know, understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this, is, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity to get into your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would speak through me in a powerful way, that, Lord, uh, people would see you and your word, and, uh, Lord, that I would just uh, move into the background. Lord, we come to an amazing text, a text that is utterly astonishing in some ways, that the King of glory, truth and purity personified, would be beaten and mocked, spat upon, and abused. And Lord, even as all that is going on, as your son endured all of that, one of his closest followers would deny him three times. Oh Lord, we see our wayward hearts. We see the struggle we have in putting you in, its right, in, in the rightful place. And for that, we are sorry, Lord. Now teach us how not to do that, how we can lift you high and give you the glory that's due your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. One of the most famous sermons to ever be preached on American soil was preached on July 8th, 1741 in the city of Enfield, Connecticut. It was given by a man named Jonathan Edwards. No doubt many of you have, have heard or no doubt studied that man. And his sermon is so well known and so well published that I remember in my junior uh, English class that we studied this sermon and looked and understood what Edwards was trying to say. And the title of it was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In this message that he articulates over and over again the fact of a real hell and sinners' precarious position of experiencing that torment for eternity. And as a result of that message, it would light a fire in here in North America. It would be one of the things that would start what is called the Great Awakening, where hundreds of thousands of people would bow the knee to Jesus Christ, turn from their evil ways, and a revival would break forth like it had never happened in the new world. Now what I want to do is take some liberty and turn Jonathan Edwards' message around a little bit. Here, as we look at our text in Mark today, we see that Jesus Christ, the God-man, finds himself in the hands of angry sinners. Instead of sinners being in the hands of an angry God, we have God in the hands of, an angry, of angry sinners. And it's an absolute astonishment as we look at this text that the Father would allow his own Son to be mocked, to be beaten, to be falsely judged, by angry sinners who finally would succeed in killing him by placing him on a cross and letting him die. Now I hope through this message that we would consider, first of all, the willing heart of Jesus, who was willing to hand himself over to such mistreatment by the hands of wicked men, and understand that this is the demonstration of God's love. That when we read from Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when it says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners. I want, we're going to focus a lot on what those sinners did, but I want you to be thinking about if you were in the crowd, what might you have been doing? 
Rembrandt, the great artist, once did a picture where they were hanging Jesus on the cross. And he had pictures of all kinds of people, all guilty of hanging Christ on the cross. And if you've ever seen the painting, Rembrandt has a shadowy figure at the very corner, bottom corner of the painting. And someone asked him, in fact, numerous people asked Rembrandt, who is that shadowy figure? And Rembrandt said, it is I. I am the one who put Christ on the cross. I am the one who is as guilty as another. But in our text today, we will see that God demonstrates his love for us, that he sent Jesus to endure such hostility, to endure such pain, for sinners like you and I. And when did it happen? While we shook our fists, while we spat in his face, while we did our own thing. What a gospel. What a message of love. What a final night for Jesus. One that would be a historic night. I wonder what the angels in heaven were doing. The gasp that must have been taking place as they handcuffed Jesus, as they take him and drag him to a place for a trial, as they call him a crook, what the angels must have been thinking, what must have gone on in the angels' minds when they see Jesus being hit, and they see all of that spit being thrown at him, the mocking taking place. All of heaven must have been in an all-out uproar, and yet we see Jesus Christ standing firm. There are three things I want to pull from this text this morning. And the first one is, I want us to look at and understand something that was true then and is true now, and that is the world's contempt when it comes to Jesus. The world's contempt when it comes to Jesus. On this night, we're going to see the fulfillment of what Jesus would tell his disciples in another gospel. I want you to turn from Matthew and just go to uh, uh, the two, two books over to the gospel of John. So Matthew, go to the right, the book of uh, Mark, and then Luke, and then John. And John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Jesus had told them about this. They should have been aware of it, and we need to be reminded of it as well. In John chapter 15, this is Jesus' uh, time with uh, the disciples in the upper room, and this is what he shares. If the world hates you, keep in mind that they hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. Let's just stop there for a moment. It doesn't take us long to understand and know that in this world, Jesus doesn't hold a high standing. I'm utterly amazed by what I see in the newspapers and in our media today and the acceptance of certain things 
And then when someone says that they're a follower of Jesus Christ, the sneers and the jabs that come, the contentment that is there, it's as if we have said that we are an axe murderer because we say we are the follower of what many have said is not only the greatest man, but as we know, the Son of God. And yet the world has grown in its contempt. Now, it's no different than in Jesus' day. And I want you to notice the progression that takes place. The reason why they hate him is because he's competition, and that's at the heart of everything of who we are. The reason why some hate Jesus is because he gets in their way. He's troublesome for them. He is the one who wants to be Lord, and yet people themselves desire that position as well. And this was the problem for the Pharisees. And I want you to notice what this hatred caused them to do. First of all, it caused them to be devious. It caused them to be devious. We've seen this devious behavior by the religious establishment throughout this series. As we've looked for some time now, Mark has declared over and over again that the Pharisees and the scribes have been all up in Christ's business since the beginning. Now, it began with just some uh, altercations and some confrontations over a couple things. Uh, it had to do with the healing on the Sabbath, his disciples picking grain along a road on the Sabbath. It would become even more uh, burdensome for them because they would begin to accuse Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And after a set of these altercations, of these confrontations that produced very little, they throw caution to the wind, and they come up with a plan, and the plan comes after Jesus goes on their home turf. Remember, in Mark eleven eighteen, 18, Jesus enters into the temple, and he starts turning tables over, and he begins to clear the temple, and he says, what should be a house of prayer has become a house of robbers. And as a result of that, in Mark eleven eighteen, 18, the text tells us that the chief priest and the Pharisees were trying to figure out the best way. They were devising a plan to arrest him and charge him with a capital offense. Now, why wouldn't they just kill him? Why not just an assassination attempt? Just go in, knock him off, and be done with him. Because the Pharisees, while they did not fear God, over and over again, when you see the text, it will say that they devised a plan to try to arrest him. And the reason why they wanted to arrest him and charge him was fear of the people. Jesus was a popular figure. Jesus had done amazing things. And these Pharisees were more concerned about public opinion than they were about God's person that he has sent in his son, Jesus Christ. And so here's the problem. If we're going to try him and convict him of something, it's going to be difficult because Jesus was a perfectly innocent person. And that leads then to the trial that we see take place. In verse 43 of our text, it tells us that Judas leads a crowd with clubs and swords to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. This is the betrayal, of course, of Judas that we've studied and we are told in John 18, 12, that what happens after that is that Jesus is taken to the home of Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year for all of the people of Israel. So they have gone to the head guy who oversees the law of Moses and the law of God, and they've gone to his father-in-law's house to hold a trial. Now, herein lies the problem. These tactics of the religious leaders 
that night was completely underhanded and unlawful according to the laws that they held in such high regard. And so here they are the ones that are always holding up, you can't do this, you can't do that, and they throw that all out of the window, and they say, we're going to do this trial the way we want to. And I want you to notice the dishonesty. There's a dishonesty that takes place. First of all, we see, I want you to write down, they were dishonest somewhere next to the word dishonest, right in the trial. They were dishonest with the trial. The text tells us, a couple things about what's going on, and we know from the law and from history that there are, in fact, eight ways that these men broke the law with this trial. Number one, no criminal trial in the Jewish uh, nation could start at night. There was no night court. There was no time for that. It was a time of rest, and that it would be dealt with in the morning. So they've broken that law. Number two, the Jewish council could not initiate charges, but could only preside over the trial brought by an outside party. What that means, and put it in our idea, what Jesus is going before is the Sanhedrin, the 70 greatest leaders of the Jewish nation at that time. It'd be like going before the Supreme Court, and you can't have Clarence Thomas come down and be the prosecuting attorney. You are either the judicial system, the judge who sits on his uh, seat, or you are the prosecutor. What the Jewish law said is you can't do both. And here we have the judges playing the part of the prosecution. That doesn't fly here in America, nor did that fly in the Jewish world. Number three, the initial proceedings took place in a home and not in the temple as were required by the law. So the place that they're holding this is no good. Fourth, Jesus was tried without a defense counsel. Even the most guilty and most heinous of sinners were always giving someone to speak on the behalf of the accused. Do you see that in the text? There's nowhere where there's someone saying, I'm here for Jesus. I am the public defender. I am the one who will stand and be an advocate for Jesus. Number five, you see how kangaroo court this is? Number five, the defense was supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. And the text says it goes the opposite way. Number six, he could not be convicted on the basis of self-incrimination. That means even if, and I want you to understand this, even if Jesus said, yep, I want to tell you something. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this. By his mere confession, they still could not hold him as guilty unless there were witnesses who were present to say, yes, all of those things are true. You couldn't incriminate yourself in the court of law. Now, let's stop there for a moment. In capital cases where the death sentence would come, it was not to happen for three days. What that means is if there was a capital case that was going to come, which this was, they wanted to arrest him so that they could put him to death. That's what they say over and over again. The rules and the laws of Moses said that in a capital offense, you needed to, as the Sanhedrin, take three days to pray and to fast because it showed the amazing weight of the decision you're making. Brothers and sisters, he is brought in on Friday morning, late Thursday night, Friday morning, and he's on the cross some 12 or 13 hours later. 
Where's the three-day waiting period? Where's the prayer? Where's the fasting? They are doing things all the way they want to. Now, I want you to notice that it wasn't just the trial, but it was also in the testimonies. Notice verses 55 through 59. It says, then the chief priests and this whole Sanhedrin, I want you to understand this. They bring him in. They arrest him. I want you to think about it. I know you guys watch Law and Order and stuff like that. You guys are into that kind of stuff. The chief priests bring him in, and then they start looking for the evidence. Does that kind of seem odd to you? How would you like that here in America if you were just brought in and then we're like, well, we'll figure out what you're guilty for when we get you in before the judge. So they bring him in. He's not accused of anything because they can't accuse him without the testimony of other people. And so they get him into the trial like, all right, now we got to figure out who's going to speak against him. Now notice what it says. Many testified falsely against them. But their statements did not agree. Now, I want you to, again, I'll give you a little more history here. Conviction of a crime required the testimony of at least two witnesses. And they had to have had, and this is very important, they had to have had direct experience within the point of crime. Meaning, it could not be done via hearsay. It couldn't be that uh, you were at the scene of the crime and uh, you didn't really see it, but you came in an hour later and someone came up and told you about what they saw that wouldn't fly in court. You had to be an eyewitness to it and you had to be able to identify the precise time and location of the event. Now understand, this isn't coming from Tim. I'm not making the rules as a follower of Jesus. These are the rules that they have made and they're blowing it all over the place. Now, false witnesses, now here's the funny thing. If, because it was so serious to accuse an individual falsely, false witnesses were subject to the same penalty of the accused if they perjured themselves. So if I was to say that Tom was a thief and the uh, punishment for being a thief is that I'll spend five years in jail... And it is found out that I've told false witness against Tom. Tom doesn't spend the five years in jail. I do. Here these guys bring the false witnesses in. And I don't see any of them being hung on a cross. They're false witnesses. And here's the thing. You say, well, how do you know they were false witnesses? The text tells us their statements did not agree. And so in every way, from the trial to the testimonies, we see that they, and every part of that night, was an absolute mockery of justice. And to add insult to injury, they violated their own laws. It wasn't like they were violating someone else's laws. They were violating their others. But they wanted to see one thing, and that is Christ be crucified. This was not a pursuit of truth, but one of treachery. One of trappings. One commentator puts it this way. He says, what a dismal, I'm sorry, what a display of abysmal wickedness of men. Many false witnesses came forward and he says, many. Think about that, that there could be many witnesses who would go before a man who ministered to people, who loved people, who forgave people, 
who healed people, who delivered them from all kinds of diseases, who raised a man back to life, that there would be in this world many people who would stand and lie. And brothers and sisters, while it's nice to live in the Fox Valley area and our middle class families and lives, I want you to know that behind the, the picture, the picture-perfect American life, are hearts that are deceitfully wicked and hearts that desire nothing more than to accuse Jesus of things that he has not done. And here's the amazing thing. All of this is being done not by the sinners of the land, but the spiritual leaders of the land. The high priest is involved. Now, we are told that this is getting nowhere. Notice in the text it says that many false witnesses testified against him, and their statements did not agree. Verse 57, then some stood up and gave false testimony against him, and, and then they misquote him, and they speak to things that aren't true in those uh, statements, and then they don't even agree, so we don't even know what exact testimony was. And notice in verse 60, the high priest stands up before them, and he asks Jesus, are you going to answer? What is your testimony to these men that are bringing these accusations against you? And he's silent. And the reason why he's silent is if someone's lying about you, understand this, it does you no good when they don't play by the rules for you to get into the fights. My dad told me as a young man, don't get in a fight with a pig. He loves to get in the mud, and you're the only one who comes out getting dirty. And this is what Jesus does. He stays out of the fray. He said, I'm not going to get involved in this. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to involve myself in these lies. And so the chief priest knows that the, the trial is beginning to wane. The legality of it is beginning to fall. It's becoming an embarrassment. So Caiaphas takes center stage. And I believe he asks a humanly wise question. I'm going to get rid of the middlemen, and I'm going to go straight to the horse's mouth. And I'm going to ask Jesus this question. And notice what the question is in verse 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Caiaphas is like, here, this is why they pay me the big bucks. Let's get down to brass tacks. Let's deal with it. Are you or aren't you the Christ? Here's the thing. If Jesus says no, he's put to shame. Nobody's going to follow him. Nobody's going to listen to him anymore. If Jesus says yes, then they can say he's just a man and he's filled with blasphemy. And so he asks the question. And Jesus responds and he says in verse 62, I am. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, and I want you to know something, brothers. You're going to see me sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. If you think that the Messiah, boys, is just a man with a great lineage, let me tell you something. I don't just have a lineage to David, but I have a father in heaven. And I'm going to judge, and I'm going to come, and you may have your fun here in this kangaroo court, but I'm going to deal with it at some point, and it will come at a time of my choosing. And here's the thing, I don't need to bring false witnesses because I am the fair and righteous judge. And I will expose every man's work on that great and glorious day. Now notice, Jesus responds. <laughs> Verse 63 says that they become a little bit dramatic. Caiaphas makes a scene. Have you ever noticed that drama usually comes when you don't have substance? 
You got to start changing something. If you don't got anything much to say, you got to do something. And, and here, like a, like a, a teenager, no, no uh, offense teenagers, but like a teenager who wants to just show just the anger and frustration or of a preschooler in the candy aisle in a grocery store, the drama begins to unfold. And he literally takes his clothes, and, and one commentator says he would have screamed, ah! And he rips his, his uh, robes, his clerical garments. And he does so to show his utter indignation and anger. He's appalled. I can't believe he said it. Man, we've got to deal with this once and for all. But here's the problem. Sounds good, looks good, until you look at Leviticus 21.10. Leviticus 21.10, you can just write this passage down. I'll read it for us for the sake of time. Leviticus 21.10 says the following. Speaking of the high priest. It says, the high priest, the one among his brothers who has the anointing oil poured on his head and who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments must not let his hair become unkempt or tear his clothes. Here is Jesus, truth and perfection personified. He has answered wisely and correctly and truthfully. And we got drama queen over here ripping his garments, pointing at the sin of perfection, while in the process, and this is what religi religiosity does, we become overly dramatic, and in it, we're falling to sin as we do it. And so here he's he got all this drama. And what we learn of one thing, we don't know much about Caiaphas, but what we do know is he's a phenomenal actor. He gets an Oscar for it. Because because of his response, everybody's like, yeah, condemn the guy to death. He's worthy of death. We've, we've got to deal with this once and for all. And they find him guilty, the text says. It says, after they tear the clothes, we don't need any more witnesses. You've heard the blasphemy. What are you thinking? It says, they all condemned him as worthy of death. And it's here that we see their response is disgusting. In verse 65, it says, they began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. They start having fun with Jesus. He's their prisoner, and they start to mock him. Many commentators believe that they're imitating his teaching and his preaching. They're mimicking some of his claims. I'll tear down the temple, and I'll rebuild it, and, and all of the different things that he did, making fun of all the claims that he had, and Mark says they spat in his face. One of the greatest and most vile of reproach to another individual. One commentator says that it was all too uncommon based on Josephus, a historian of Roman history, who says that soldiers would many times play the game seeing who could produce the most spit and land it on the place of the face that they had made their target. The God of the universe, an angry sinner spitting in his face. And then it says the punches come. And the punches come and they blindfold him because they want to have games with him and say, hey, if you're a prophet, then tell me who hit you. And, and punches and slaps would come. And, the, and in the Greek language and construction, the idea of the spitting and the punching literally is over and over and over and over again to the point where you want to just give up and give in. It's never going to end. And we see that Jesus remains silent. What a scene. What contempt. Can I remind you of this truth? 
We live in a world that still holds Jesus in that same way. Oh, we're more civilized. Oh, we, we, we are open and we are tolerant, baloney. We live in a world that holds Jesus with such contempt. If you don't believe me, ask the man who's in the Iranian prison right now for preaching Christ, who at any point could face death. If you don't believe me, ask the thousands of Christians who have lost their life, who have been slaughtered in the Middle East in these last couple years for the cause of Christ. And the funny thing is, many of you say, well, I didn't know that was going on. A light bulb. Who cares about the Christians? Who cares about them standing for Christ? I don't see our government going and saying this has got to end. But God forbid if one page of the Koran gets singed, we're in an uproar. We're apologizing and we're making sure all the dignitaries are there saying, what a travesty. Because the world hates Jesus. And we need to be aware of that. And here's the reason why, brothers and sisters, and I apologize, mothers, man, you're like, holy cow. (laughs) I tell you this because the Bible says just as they hated Jesus, they're going to hate us. And brothers and sisters, right now, we're living in, in some real peaceful times, but the day's coming, and we need to be ready. And what the question then is, is when Jesus is enduring that and when the world comes at us, what are we going to do? And that brings us right to it. And i got to get moving here. But we see the witnesses compromise. We see Peter. And I'm going to spend a lot of time. We've, we've dealt with it. But we see a lot of compromise with Peter. Now, Peter's been spending time with Jesus for three and a half years. And he's been uh, with Jesus, watching Jesus, following Jesus. And how do we find Jesus at such a place of compromise? The answer is seen not in a fall that is quick and decisive. It's not a blowout in your tire terminology. What we've got going on here in Peter's life is a slow leak. It's what you find in the springtime when you go to ride your bike. The tire's flat. Well, it didn't happen all at once. It happened over a period of time. And I want you to see a couple things with regards to this. And I'll make my last two points short. But stick with me here. The first thing that creates the slow leak of compromise in Peter's life is the the dismissing of godly teaching. The dismissing of godly teaching. Without being redundant as to what we talked about last week, I want to remind you of the importance of what you are doing right now. Now, some of you sit there and say, church again? Why? Why does Tim have to get up week in and week out and preach to me? The reason is, is because we are quick to leave the God we love. And what we need over and over again is to hear godly teaching that reminds us of what we need to be ready for. And that involves private times of devotion and even during these corporate times of worship. Now, Peter dismisses this because notice on two occasions, Jesus has warned the disciples, including Peter, that the devil's gunning for him in Luke 22, 31, and then in Mark 14, 27, that all would fall away. And then he tells Peter exactly how it's going to be done. But here's the problem. Peter doesn't recognize it. Notice until verse 72. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered. Oh, yeah. 
Now I remember what Jesus was talking about. And here's the issue, brothers and sisters, the reason why we remind uh, as a church ourselves over and over and over again is because we are prone to walk away. We are prone to fall, our, fall away from God. I love what Hebrews 5.11 says, there is much that we'd like to say to you about this. But it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Some of you are sitting there and you're looking and going, okay, this guy's got to be done soon. Let me tell you something. Be careful. You're on the road to compromise. You're on the road to compromise. If, if you're able to listen to all this stuff and say, whatever. Peter's like, yeah, whatever, Jesus. Yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, 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 yada, yada, fall away. I get it. Uh-huh. And little does he know at the point of greatest time of trial that he forgets what God says. This is why we preach. This is why we teach. Now notice it involves distancing oneself from Christ, verses 53 and 54. The text tells us that Peter is following from a distance, from afar. And there's a lot of speculation on why he does this. Is he trying to prove his faithfulness amidst the prophecy of his failure? I'll show Jesus. I'll follow, but I'll be wise and I'll stay a couple hundred feet away. Is he doing it, uh, thinking that something still may develop and a revolution may break out? I just got to keep watching Jesus, and maybe at some point he'll come to his senses and he'll bring this whole thing down on its head. Or is the curiosity just got the best of him? Whatever the reason is, he's traveling behind Jesus far enough back, and I want you to notice this, far enough back not to be noticed as a follower. He can see Jesus, and the text tells us in another gospel that Jesus and Peter see each other. But he fall, he's far enough back because walking too close to Jesus would be too costly. Being too close and too intimate with Jesus would impact his standing and his status. And I wonder if there are some of us today who are real close to Jesus at the time when it's fun at the Lord's Supper or on Sunday morning. But when it starts to cost us on that Monday morning at about 9.30, if Jesus gets farther and farther and farther away. Oh, we can still see Jesus. But he's far enough away, nobody's going to ask me about him. He's far enough away that nobody will be able to identify me. At least that's what we think. Nobody will be able to identify that I'm a follower of his. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, the times when I have fallen to sin have been times when Jesus has gotten a lot farther away than I should have ever have led him. And you say, well, Tim, Jesus didn't go anywhere. No, Jesus didn't go anywhere. I did. And some of you right now are allowing family, you're allowing work, you're allowing sports and hobbies and pursuits. And, and I, I tell you something, I don't care what excuse you give, you're distancing yourself from Jesus. And you say, well, it hasn't bothered me yet. You know, it wasn't any problem for Peter until someone started asking some questions, until he was on that slippery slope of failure we talked about before it was too late. Notice it leads him to then deny one's relationship with Jesus. I won't belabor this. Peter denies Christ three times. We know it. He becomes more and more vehement as the questions come. And he's noticed as one who's been with Jesus. Can I tell you something? We're terrible actors. We're not like Caiaphas. We don't get awards. Even when we're bad at it, Peter was terrible at it. And they're like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Because we don't look like the world. Because there are parts of us that we want to keep with Christ because we can't live the double life. 
And so when someone says, hey, uh, what did you do yesterday? You got to tell them you went to church. But that doesn't add up with the mouth that you have, with the jokes that you tell, with the flirting that is done. It doesn't work. And so now you've got to deny things. And that's what Peter does. He denies things. And here's the amazing thing, and I came up with this late last night. I think it's, it, it's amazing, the ironies of Scripture. While people, while there are false witnesses with Jesus who are speaking about their interaction with Jesus falsely, a follower of Jesus is doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. They're saying, hey, let me tell you about my interaction with Jesus, and they're lying about it, their involvement with Jesus. Peter is doing the exact same thing, which is a great reminder for us as Christians. We don't think that we're prone to fall to the ugliness of sin like unbelievers do. Peter's doing the same thing that those false witnesses were doing in the courtroom with Jesus. We're prone to it. Of course, this leads to great disaster. He's going to go, he's going to stand outside the city, and he's going to weep bitterly. He's going to be filled with remorse. His, his insides are literally going to become undone. He's going to go off alone in the dark. He's going to weep his heart out. And the next few days and the few nights that he has will be long and terrible. Jesus would be put to death and placed in a grave. Peter would then wander from place to place, tormented by the cowardly actions and his conscience of burning deep inside. He would make his way back to his fellow disciples, maybe looking for some hope, only to find out that they were miserable disasters as well. All of them reeling. Brothers and sisters, from your pastor, I tell you this. Pay close attention to your faith. Because before you know it, just like Peter, we find ourselves weeping bitter tears. Because when we left Jesus, we left the only protection we have. Let me just stop with, let's start with one more thing. And that is, and I would be totally remiss not to bring Jesus back into this. And what we see is the way of the champion. Let me close with just a couple things. Amidst a night of lies and confusion and sin, we see Jesus. And he's the champion. He's the one who stands tall, and here's some reasons why. Number one, because of its settled spirit. I'm struck that Jesus in his spirit has no diverting from the Father's will. Well, there are all kinds of moving parts, all kinds of deception, all kinds of trouble around him. Jesus remains unmoved. He remains focused on the goal of bringing glory to his Father no matter what he has to endure in his life. In a great night of turmoil, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And what a reminder for us in these turbulent times where it seems that all things are running amok, where there needs to uh, be all kinds of responses to this world, Jesus gives us one, the call for the Christian to pursue the peace that transcends all understanding. Jesus had it. And we need it as well. Notice his steadfastness. Because his spirit was settled, he could be outwardly steadfast. Being bound, beaten, mocked, spat upon, and rejected. And not once did he retaliate. How in the world could he do that? He deserved the opportunity to fight back. He could have wiped them off the face of the earth. He could have unleashed the wrath, but he doesn't. And here's why he doesn't do it today as well. Because in his patience, he is giving us time to be saved. 
He could have done it to them, but brothers and sisters, he could have done it with us. And in his patience, he shows his mercy. In his willingness to take the affront that comes his way, he is willing to hold back his wrath. He does this because of submission to the Father. We go back to Mark 14, 36. Not my, father, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Jesus shows us that we can endure anything when we get our eyes off of self and onto our Father in heaven. Jesus was able to endure the cross because his eyes weren't on the cross. They were on what the cross was going to do for the name of his Father in heaven. And finally, we see his sovereignty. I love how Jesus answers this question. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed One. And you are going to see one day the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Brother Jesus, brothers and sisters, Jesus shows us that we too can be champions. When we focus in on God's will and not our own, when hope is lost and things grow dark and dim, we can look to Christ and put our hope in his word and the sovereign plan he has. Because I know, and please hear me for just a second, we live in a world that hates Jesus, in a world that will hate us. It hates his word, it hates the hope that he brings. And because we've been with him for a while, they'll grow to hate us too. And we're living in times where it'll be harder and harder to live for Christ. But take heart, brothers and sisters, we have a high priest. And that high priest paved the way back to God and to a life of victory. And right when things seem like they cannot get any worse, brothers and sisters, Jesus will come in the clouds and he will deal once and for all with all of the rebellion, with all of the issues that we've thrown at him. He will deal with it justly and rightly. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we are so thankful for your word. God, I'm so thankful that you came and you endured all of this. I'm ashamed that you had to, but I'm glad, Father, because because of it now I can have eternal life. Now, Lord, this calls us to action, to live like you did, to speak honestly and openly about who you are in a world that may not like you. Lord, it seems like we're losing the culture wars. It seems like we're losing on every battlefront, but I am reminded greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that, Lord, everything is in your sovereign plan and will, and you will unveil it as you see fit in the ways that you have declared. Lord, let us take heart and take peace in that so that we may know without a shadow of a doubt that you are in control and that you will bring all things under your feet, including your enemies. Lord, I'm thankful that I'm no longer an enemy. I'm thankful that many in this place are no longer enemies of yours. We once were. And it's not because we got it, but because of your sovereign and gracious love for us. While we were still sinners, you died for us. And you paved the way back for us to get to God. And Lord, I pray for the individual who today is an enemy of God. Whether they know it or not, that today would be the day that they bow the knee. So that they won't experience God's wrath but then they may experience your love and your mercy. Lord, I pray that would be the case. Now, Lord, send us off into this world so that we may be the light in a world of darkness. Let us be a bright light within our schools, our neighborhoods, 
with family or friends, wherever we may be, let our light shine brightly among men. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.